Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden Artist Colors mix the best acrylic paints, core watercolors, Williamsburg oil colors, and mediums that you can buy. You can find Golden Artist Colors in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound Division is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum Coffee Roasters has three unique brands, which are unified in simple, earnest, and grounding principles. Fulcrum's own coffee line, Silver Cup, and Urban City. I've teamed up with Fulcrum to collaborate and create artwork for a new coffee tin. I created artwork inspired by some of the origins of where Fulcrum gets their coffee beans, and created the artwork for a tin which comes with a single origin coffee from Costa Rica, a 12-ounce bag. Both the coffee and the tin cost $35, and you can get it at their website, which is fulcrumcoffee.com. Leo Villarreal. As an artist born in 1967 in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who lives and works in New York. He works with LED arrays to create complex rhythmic light sculptures and other works for both gallery and public settings. He focuses on identifying the governing structures of systems and is interested in base units such as pixels and binary code. His installations are based on custom, artist-created code which operate in real-time to constantly alter the frequency, intensity, and patterning of light. Leo has created major temporary and permanent works for numerous public spaces and museums, including the Herbert F. Johnson Museum at Cornell University, the National Gallery of Art in D.C. He is particularly known for two monumental public works. The Bay Lights, a site-specific generative light sculpture that occupies the entire western space of the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, and Illuminated River, a series of light sculptures installed on bridges over the River Thames in London. I spoke with Leo about growing up in Texas, moving to the Northeast for school, Burning Man revelations, NFTs, finding the light, and much more. Here's our conversation. Lots of things going on, which is great. You know, we had a we had to shut down our studio. You know, uh, we just moved into a new space in Industry City in Brooklyn, and oh yeah, you know, a month, a month before the be. pandemic. Yeah, it was great. But then we had this shiny new studio, but you know, then everyone had to leave, and oh, so yeah. now we've been able to come back, and you know, so now things are really rolling, which is good. Yeah, that's good. Um, I when you say like we in the studio. I have no concept of what your studio situation is like because you could, I was thinking about your work, you could hypothetically have like a Coons-like gigantic space with like a bunch of people helping you with things or you could be the Gabriel Orozco where you don't have a studio at all and you're just going somewhere and making things and doing it on the fly. So I wasn't sure how you were working. 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it started out me alone in the studio and then, you know, someone helping me and it grew and grew. And now we have about 10 people in the studio and depending on what we're doing and many more, um, as we need fabricators or engineers or architects or whatever it is, because the, you know, a lot of this stuff I could do on my own. I mean, like the, you know, the, but, but I think it's gotten, in a way, I feel like I'm running my own little research lab in my studio Yeah, and we're able to do lots of things, but that does require a team. And it, it's something that takes getting used to because you, you know, sort of, you know how to do something, but you know, you can do more things if you're able to find people to help you and kind of, um, and I really like the way that, you know, sometimes my studio team describes me as like, you know, I'm the sort of astronaut out on the spacewalk and they're the ones who like, you know, they're feeding me the hoses and making sure I'm able to, you know, go out and do whatever I need to do. Yeah. Um, which I really like, I feel a great level of, of support and, you know, it's really a wonderful group of people. And, and that's the thing is like life is short and every experience needs to be great. Um, uh, so we, yeah, we have a really nice, um, nice space and I, I love working with the people. That sounds good. I imagine it would be daunting to do what you're doing if it was just you. I mean, it would, I think of 2001 or like silent runnings or something where you're just out there. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it's it just, it's also fun to work with people. So yeah. Um, yeah. It's a collaborative, it's a collaborative way of working too, which I think, you know, I, I, I assume that most artists who work in a way like that, it fits their working type, you know, which probably isn't always the case. Cause I know I've had friends who were like photorealistic painters and they're like, I can't stand painting like this, but that's the only way I know, you know, it's like the way I do it, but it goes against the way that I want to make. But you know, people who have a sort of team or are almost working in a director as a way, or, you know, kind of like leading that charge or working out in the public realm more than in the studio or, or vice versa. You think it's just ideally you find your lane as far as like the way that you're working. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, it's been an evolution and I'm thinking a lot about the future as well. It's like, okay, this is, you know, someone asked me recently, well, are you going to retire when you're 65? I'm like, you know, artists don't, don't retire. I mean, no. Um, Isn't that funny? We just don't. Yeah, do <laughs> no. You just you keep at it, and um, this is like it's not a job. It's like something you're really passionate about and you love, and you know, feel very lucky to be able to do. You know, I feel lucky to be able to do what I do. Um, that's uh, that's the mark of I think something fulfilling in life. Like if people mention retirement, and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. what? Oh yeah, I hadn't really thought of that. That is a good gig because yeah. I think most people have that 65 or whatever it is or the 401k or whatever it's lined up for like pulling the ripcord and getting out of there, you know? Yeah. And, and that, that is, that is pretty depressing. Um, but you know, hopefully people can find a way to rejigger what they're doing and get some yeah, satisfaction out of it. There's always football on the weekends. If not, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have something, right? Something to, I mean, my dad was like that. It was just like, you know, his job was like the job. And he always told me, you know, do what you want to do. Just, you know, enjoy it and do it 150% and you'll be all set. You know, and that's kind of like the way. But I don't know. Did you, did you grow up in a creative household? 
Yeah, I grew up, um, I was born in Albuquerque and I grew up in Juarez, uh, Mexico, right across from El Paso, Texas. When yeah. I was young, up until maybe about fourth grade, lived in Juarez and then we moved to El Paso. So right on the border and, uh, yeah, my parents definitely, they, they collected art and I mean, things that were sort of regional, like, you know, Southwestern art and yeah. uh, things, but we definitely had art around and, um, and over time, I think my, my dad got more and more involved in, in art and it was, it was really nice for us. Cause I, you know, I, I left there when I was 16 to go to boarding school and which no one did, but I, you know, it was good for me cause I was bored and uh, suddenly I was, you know, everyone had to take drawing class and I was going to museums in Boston and New York and realizing right. I really loved, loved art. And so that opened up a lot of doors for me. Um, and it, um, you know, and then I, you know, I started learning about, you know, about whatever Russell's meanings of modern art. And I remember sending that book to my dad, uh, you know, because I was really interested in contemporary work and kind of shifted him into some other stuff. So it was a really nice conversation. And he, you know, he, he was immensely supportive of me kind of going off and doing my thing and um, really enabled me to do that, which I, I'm very grateful for. Yeah, I, this is a real bias and totally unfair, but. I just don't, I can't picture, or I wouldn't go to a Tex-Mex kind of like on the border area, someone just being a real big art enthusiast sending their kids to boarding school. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that a bias that shouldn't exist? I just picture uh -huh. like, you know, more rustic, kind of like blue collar -y. But obviously there's, you know, there's all kinds of people living everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But what did they do? What did your parents, how did they get to be art lovers um well my dad he did a bunch of real estate stuff in mexico on the border um so he was building industrial real estate and um so you know uh but i guess he he just had a real i think he, he always was, was very creative and i think he maybe wanted to be an architect or do something more creative but he couldn't do it because of his family and right. you know did, all the stuff job Right. Running the, you know, I don't know. So I think in, in a way he, he's let me kind of escape all that and go do what yeah. I wanted to do. Yeah. And as the uh, parent of a ninth grader, I'm curious of the boarding school phenomenon. Like, what was that like? I mean, all of a sudden you're in Rhode Island. That's a, isn't that a pretty big shift with no one? Like, unless you went with a group of friends, but I imagine it's like deep end of the pool. Yeah. Here's I New mean, England, from, buddy. Here's the weather. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. From El Paso, Texas to Portsmouth, Rhode Island and you know, the wind whipping off Narragansett Ugh. Bay and you know, slight, and it was just like a, shift. <laughs> a real shock. Um yeah. and you know, it was like an all boys like Catholic school and I mean it was great. I, I, I it was fantastic because I just had um you know, I had a um you know, a lot of amazing people that, that really helped me to kind of grow and learn and, and figure stuff out. And, um, so yeah. And, and the, you know, the art thing there was, you know, that was something that really, you know, I really latched on to. So, yeah. so you had a good teacher, had a great teacher, really wonderful. Yeah. Um, many, many great teachers. I mean, just very, you know, so that was access to that was really important for me. Yeah, I can imagine. So, but then, you know, in looking at your bio, you went, to Yale for sculpture or, or did you just, I didn't even know they had majors in undergrad there. 
as far yeah, as you, art. You can major in art, and um, so I did. Um, I, I when I first went, I thought I would, I would study art history. I was actually doing a lot of set design, and then I took my first installation sculpture class, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is awesome!" And, Who taught that? Um, Alice Acock was my teacher, and she seriously, just, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I talked to her Alice. for this. Yeah, she's oh, cool. great. Oh my god, she is. You know, she was wonderful and a great first teacher, and I mean. You know, she just opened up so many worlds for us. It's, she was just like, you you know, you as an artist can take inspiration from anything. Right. And there's nothing that's off limits. And you can use it any way you want. And I was just like, whoa, that, that just blew my mind and has been, you know, really a something that, you know, it was great first first moment with her. And, and I decided right then, I'm like, I want to be an artist for sure. So Well, great. that'll do it. How many, you know, BFAs have Alice Icon. You know, that's like, again, another deep end of the pool, or like a deep yeah, dive. Yeah. I mean, you could just Google your teacher and see all the stuff she's done, especially for someone who became interested in working in the public realm. I mean, her pieces are all over. I mean, you don't even know that you're seeing her work sometimes. Like that piece on the uh, on the East Side Highway, you know, like... Wh- yes. You yeah. know, I drove by that a million times. I was like, what the hell is that thing? You know, and then I yeah, yeah. finally Googled <laughs> it. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. You know, because I didn't walk to it first. I would just drive by it. But like, she's got so many, you know, iconic pieces out there, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it was. Um, and, and, you know, if you were a serious undergraduate at Yale, you basically could go to grad school. Um, and the <clears throat> sculpture department was out at a place called Hammond Hall, kind of near the hockey rink. And we were left to our own devices um, and it was amazing. And, you know, like Matt Barney was one of my, you know, it was a year ahead of me and, you know, really like uh, making amazing, incredible work. And I feel, you know, really lucky to have been with that group of people. And, um, you know, so it was a, a really special moment. Were the, um, cause you, so you majored in sculpture. Were you taking other art classes though? Or was it pretty siloed? I mean, even when I was there, late 90s, Hammond was still, you know, over there. It wasn't combined yet. I think it was right after I left that they built that new building. And there was, even though the the students, we would all hang out. We did the summer work crew thing where I would work Mm -hmm. with sculptors and stuff. But it was pretty separate. Like, you had to make the effort to go see those lectures or to go hang out, you know. Yeah, I mean, the painters were in the art and architecture building at that point, and really it was a whole separate thing. Um, and we were off in our own world, and, this, you know, this, the graduate students were very involved in kind of running the program, and it was it was really hands-on um, and fun. And, you know, and I got to have Vito Conchi in my studio a bunch of times, and things like that just were amazing. And they would come to my critiques, and I would go to theirs. And so it was a um, really cool cool moment um yeah yeah it seems like it would be great so how do you go from from that which seems pretty like a you know four lane highway paved towards going towards making art and just being an artist and going to grad school for sculpture or whatever to you know going to a tech program at NYU was there a gap in between yeah I I graduated 90 and and that's right when Photoshop, the first version of Photoshop came out. So there was this buzz about, yeah. Um, I wasn't even on the grid with that stuff yet. (laughs) And there was a little bit of a, I mean, I had like an Apple II plus when I was 13 and 
you know, I, I went pretty deep with that, with all kinds of, you know, voice synthesizers and doing visual stuff as much as you could do with those machines. Right. Um, but then my interest in computers kind of, you know, in college, it was something you used to like write a paper. It was not a creative tool. Right. Um, but Photoshop and then the buzz about, you know, VPL and Jaron Lanier and all the stuff going on with virtual reality. I was like, that, it sounds amazing. Um, and I really didn't know how to access that. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go to, you know, film school. Maybe I'll go to like art school. And then I found this, this, this program at NYU where I could be in New York city, which I loved and be close to the art scene and, um, and get that through my day-to-day -day experience, but also have access to the technology. Cause at that point, you know, these things were very expensive and, you know, I wanted, you know, like it, this was like, we were working with a, you know, million dollar Silicon graphics workstation in order to create virtual reality, which, which, you know, was at the medical center at NYU. And, um, even a regular computer was like, you know, would cost like $5,000 and it, you know, that yeah. came with no memory, no hard drive, nothing. So it was just a different time. And, and you couldn't even get a job it really, there was only, the only job you could get was making like CD ROMs, um, for no money. And it was a very different moment. Um, but I went deep. I got into, you know, suddenly like working with code and microcontrollers and breaking stuff apart and how does this work and learning to solder and um, editing video. And, you know, I, I ended up working at the medical center doing, you know, laparoscopic surgery simulations, you know, just so I could get access to the silicon graphics machine. So I did a bunch of stuff that, and I had no idea how I was going to use that as an artist, but I was really excited about it. And, it took a long time. So that was a two year, you know, uh, program. And I ended up getting a summer internship at a research lab in Palo Alto called interval research, which uh, Paul Allen started and was kind of his own private Xerox park. So I was super excited to come out to Silicon Valley to the kind of Mecca of technology. And after studying all this stuff and that, you know, three month deal turned into three years, I became a member of the research staff and stayed on. So that was another layer of, you know, amazing stuff because everybody in the world wanted to come to interval and, and speak. And so we had, you know, it was just incredible. The, uh, you know, the engineers, programmers, but also artists and uh, musicians and designers. And it was a very kind of utopian, cool, cool thing. Yeah. Things were pretty wide open at that point, as far as the possibilities, I imagine. Absolutely. So yeah. Now look was, what um... happened. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it feels like... It took a left know. turn at Albuquerque, as Bugs Bunny once said. No, I'm just kidding. But but real quick, before you go into that, like, what was the work like in undergrad that... What, I mean, was it f just physical sculpture, sculpture? Or were you were you noodling around with integrated circuits and stuff? Or was it pure Not analog? Undergrad, no. Undergrad was all, like, you know, it was, it was almost like, you know, in a sense, like, um, coming out of a theatrical background of finding a space and finding, you know, this equipment and creating these uh, environments with video. And um, so it was very, um, it was definitely a darker period in my work. It you know, had like a real, I think it was just New Haven at that time was, you know, pretty grim, you know, with like a crack, crunchy. <laughs> crack epidemic raging. And, yeah. you know, it was just like this wasteland and it was kind of intense. And I, I found that I don't know, as a younger person, I sort of was like interested in kind of this industrial culture and all of this vibe. So it was, a, uh, I would describe the early work as sort of Frankensteinian kind of taking these 
dead things and trying to bring them to life. And, um, but yeah, it was, a certainly a different time. And I think I, you know, evolved out of that and realized that, Oh, you know, you could really strip things down. And, um, you know, after seeing the, the work of, uh, Flavin and Terrell and that, that got me really interested in, in this kind of, and I left a lot of that behind and started focusing on, on other stuff that was much more minimal. Yeah. Well, so you're working this gig out there in Palo Alto. I mean, how do you migrate from that back into a sort of singular voice of like doing things you want to do? Was it a slow transition um, or did you just jump out of that into, oh, I'm going to make art now? Well, I got a teaching um, job at, at ITP and, but I was living in San Francisco. So I was teaching every other week. So I, I took all my teaching money and bought seven round trip tickets um, and I was kind of living between San Francisco and New York, which was really, really fun. Um, it's a long commute. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, but it, yeah, I was, and I was really kind of feeling like I needed to get back to New York. I love San Francisco and the Bay Area, but the, you know, I would get, I wanted to show a piece and, you know, this, at the research lab, I'd end up having to talk to the patent committee and the intellectual property committee. And, and I was like, I just want to show my work and I can't like function like this. I need to you know, not be locked into this place. And a lot of it. So I, I ended up, you know, needing to kind of get out of that. And I think I also missed New York and kind of a bigger city and the urban quality and all that stuff. So I ended up back here and loving it. And, you know, at that point met Yvonne, my wife. Um, so we started dating. And so that really pulled me back to New York. And in 98, uh, when we we got married. We, uh, it's when I first established my studio in Chelsea, um, which was great. And it was sort of a mucking around and trying to figure out what do I do with all this stuff? Because that, that had been like many years and many different layers of stuff that I figured out and, and eventually just ended up, I was doing a lot of sound work at that time, um, sound installations and working with light as well. Um, but um, really crystallizing, you know, what, how are you going to use these tools? Cause there's so many different directions it could take. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. And what kind of sound though? Were you, were you composing stuff or playing around with electronics? It was, um, I, I created some environments using some, a sensor that was like a theremin type sensor that had been developed at MIT. And, um, I was connecting that to all sorts of synthesizers and effects processors and things. And I, I wouldn't say it was music. It was more working with sound as a material, yeah. um, which I, I, I really, I really loved. Um, and some, you know, one of the, the second piece I made was a completely, you know, you would go into this basically eight by eight by eight foot cube and it was completely pitch black, dark reclining on a zero gravity kind of couch everything was covered with foam and uh, you would close the door and by your motions, you could kind of manipulate sound. Um, so it, it completely eliminated the visual and every other sense, but you really got into this space. Um, so it was, it was, a uh, it was fun. And yeah, it sounds cool. Yeah. I mean, was that using some sort of theremin, like, you know, technology of where movement causes a change in pitch or something or a change in, yeah, it was, I mean, I did that and then I got into sort of a video, a video tracking um, yeah. device. Um, so that was analyzing a video signal and taking a certain range of motion and then mapping that to um, MIDI. So I was using 
you know, macromedia director at that point and, you know, t tracking changes and then m mapping that to like a control change in a MIDI um, device. Yeah. Um, so it was all, it was, you know, finding those ranges and, and, and then adding effects to that, but it was all, uh, really kind of getting physical with the sound and getting inside that, you know, sound space. Yeah. Did you, at that time, was there, um, you know, obviously you mentioned like Terrell and, and people like Flavin, there's the sort of like forebearers of, of using light. But what about, were there contemporary people you were, you felt maybe in dialogue with or anyone that you were interested in as far as sound or light or sort of like environmental spaces? I think, I mean, I was, I had a big, big um, Bruce Nauman thing for a while early on. Sure. Love Duchamp. I mean, Duchamp was huge. I mean, just like, and going to the Yale Art Gallery and seeing all those optical machines that he would create that I never yeah. actually saw that one with the panes of glass that were like spokes and they were painted on it with a big motor. And I always imagined, well, what would that look like on? And I guess they turned it on once a year and I always sort of missed it. But, um, you know, those, those guys, um, uh, Saul Lewitt, of course, I was you know, kind of awesome. And, um, and, you know, eventually just what I, I, between college and grad school, I did a, I spent some time in Europe and I did a internship at the Peggy Guggenheim collection in Venice. Oh, what a great collection. Yeah. It was really super fun to live in Venice and be there. And they had a bunch of uh, the Ponza collection there, of uh, you know, Judds and all kinds of things. And I ended up going up to Varese and going to like Ponza's collection and his like stables. And I was with a 80 plus year old friend who was uh, hosting me there. And she was an amazing woman named Evelyn Lambert. So the two of us went up there and it was completely empty and in his stables. And I saw my first Terrell sky space and, um, you know, Flavin's work for the first time. And there was a lot of, uh, like Bruce Nauman corridors and, Ryman's and all this stuff and it just blew my mind and having that primary experience with that work which just kind of really etched itself um so that got me going in this kind of more pared down mode and I think when it came to you know to digital work I I didn't really like the way things looked on a monitor or projected at that time yeah because I you know I'm artist first I'd studied art I loved art and the impact that it had it all this digital stuff was like sort of ugly, you know, I don't want to see a computer and all these, you know, it just had so much baggage. And I'm like, I just want to deal with the, you know, the code. And, and when I connected software and light, is that when that connection happened, that was a really exciting moment of, you know, wow, I can suddenly have the impact that art has um, and all that, you know, using the full sensorium and that, um, but it is driven by code. So I right. found that hybrid thing and, um, so that was a kind of a big, big moment um, and kind of stepping out of this arms race because I, you know, I've been doing all this virtual reality stuff and I thought, well, if I only had this, you know, haptic sensor or this head mounted display or this special chair and it was this arms race, you just needed more and more stuff. But it actually ended up that you, you know, it was a very kind of lonely world in the 90s and doing VR and you're like in the, you know, this kind of empty polygonal space with like a sphere and some fog and a big plane and like yeah. this kind of sucks, you know? Um, but I, you know, and that's around the time that I went to Burning Man for the first time in 1994. 
Um, and that was another kind of mind blowing thing. And I kind of left the whole VR thing behind and I was like, wow, you know, here's like, there's a lot of parallels between Burning Man and virtual reality. You have this big parched earth plane with nothing growing. And, and then you actually have people who are building a city together. And that was very attractive to me. Um, and so I, I, I really like that sense of community and people getting together. And I, you know, my first experience at Burning Man was getting like profoundly lost. I couldn't, you know, I set up my tent and went off and, you know, I realized, you know, it had gotten dark and I'm like, I have no idea where my tent is. And, um, you know, there's only the Burning Man at that point and no streets and, you know, only a few thousand people. So it was a different thing than it is now. But that experience of getting lost, I, I found fascinating. I'm like, wow, I like how, like it's, this is a new space and you can relearn to navigate. And uh, so I was very intrigued by that. And by my third year out there in 97, I made this strobe light beacon with 16 strobe lights and a microcontroller and zero was off and one is on. And I started making these sets of 16 zeros and ones and programming and sequencing this thing, which I did at, at NYU um, and put it all in a suitcase. This is before 9-11. So, I mean, the TSA would have freaked out with this like crazy, you know, <laughs> yeah, that uni fly, uni literally. Unibomber. Yeah. The <laughs> Unibomber thing with wires and a, and a Tupperware container and, um, all this crazy shit, but, um, so we, you know, I took it out there, put it on top of my mobile home and uh, thinking, well, I'll just be able to get back to my home at night. Um, but it turned out that that combination of, you know, light and code and space, and it was very minimal. I mean, only 16 lights, I could only turn four of them on at one time, but out of those constraints, this kind of amazing thing uh, happened. And I realized, wow, this, this, this piece, you know, and it started to be, it actually became an artwork and, it has a sense that it's trying to communicate something. And, and it really had, it was very legible in the desert. You could see it for, you know, miles away. Um, and then people actually kind of gathered around it. And my neighbors were immensely grateful because they could get home at night. And, you know, but it became almost like this, like a digital campfire that people yeah. gathered around. And, I, and that really was exciting. So all those things kind of added up to, you know, coming back to New York and figuring out, you know, if I put an acrylic box over this light sculpture um, and hang it on the wall of my studio and, you know, and one thing led to another um, and, you know, I started exploring that kind of very, you know, working with small amounts of information and not needing and also abstraction. That was the other really interesting thing for me is the, you know, not dealing with imagery um, or text and just with sequences and patterns and and but but always about it was always about time yeah one thing i in thinking about that i don't even know if that was a piece necessarily was that a piece or was it just something you used as kind of like a you know a marking device to get back to i guess there was there's it's an art piece in a way but it was utilitarian at the same time right yeah it was a beacon it really was not a, i did not think of it as an artwork yeah it's I not like an installation like, it was serving a I, purpose yeah, there are lots of flashing lights out there. So I'm like, okay, I don't want to just have a flashing light. I need something that's distinct. Right. And I can do that by programming it. Um, so it was it was a lot of fun. And But then I was like, whoa, this is actually something. And that kind of crystallized and led to a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, the, uh, the kind of like rudimentary look to it of just those lights on like wood or whatever reminds me a little bit of... Uh... Close Encounters of the Third Kind, because when I was younger and I watched that movie, it had such a huge effect on me. But you realize when you get older and you look back at it, how simple 
some of the elements of it, but it's very direct yeah. in a way, which makes it really successful. But the thing that I was thinking about that, that piece that you did when I was, you know, thinking of that in a greater scope of what you're doing is, you know, you were using that as a beacon, as a kind of like, you know, light beacon to get back to where you were. And there's a really interesting parallel, I think, between people using the stars in the sky as a way to find their way back before, you know, Google Maps. So um, this idea of looking into space, and a lot of your work has a sort of interstellar kind of cosmic, you know, visual look to it because there are lights that are above you that you look up at, which, and in a way, just like, you know, the thing that you created is like a virtual version of that like your own way of like, you know, mapping things out with light, which is really interesting because I think that's one of the ways they used to map things before they had maps was using the sky and using light. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I take a lot of inspiration from, from nature, the things we see around us and, um, but I'm not really, I'm not like taking photographs of it or video of it. I'm trying to recreate it with code. Right. So, you know, when I was doing the Bay Lights in San Francisco, I, I did a cable walk up to the top of the Bay Bridge and was looking down at the water and it was just like spectacular and with the fog and the shadow of the bridge and really a, um, a awe-inspiring image. I kept thinking, how am I going to describe this to my programmer? Um, because I quickly exceeded my abilities as a as a coder, and, and I've worked with a lot of a lot of um, developers over time to help me create custom tools. But distilling that stuff down and like, well, how is that working? And it's very interesting to me how you can kind of capture and recreate a lot of these things that we respond to in nature through code and through these very kind of technical and artificial means, but in the in a way that elicits the same kind of response from people as when they're looking at, you know, the stars or uh, the movement of water or a sunset or those kinds of really universal things that we all are, you know, kind of hard coded to respond to. Um, and it's for me really fun to, to figure out what those things are and then play with them and and make my own kind of versions of them. And um, you know, it's almost like it's it's still rooted in this idea of world making and kind of VR. And I think I've always been interested in taking people on a journey. Um, right. but they, they may not know what, where they're going. Um, but it is sort it is pleasurable, you know, to look at light and it is very seductive. And then suddenly you're, you know, and to see, see pattern and then to try and make meaning out of it, which you never, it never quite adds up. So you're on that edge of, you know, that recognizing pattern, but not knowing what it is. And then you're suddenly you're involved in it. And, and then at a certain point you just give up and you're like, I don't really care. I'm enjoying, I just like looking at it and right. why not? Um, so that that's sort of a fun, you know, thing that I, I I work with. Yeah, I think the the use of technology to get there feels like a new frontier in a way. But in a way, it's it parallels just the existence of art making in general. That you're creating this virtual world to look at that you can so hopefully suspend your disbelief a bit and sort of buy into whatever that narrative or whatever the emotions or the feeling of that is. Obviously, you're really influenced by people like Terrell or Flavin, who there's a phenomenology of that, of looking in that way, and there's a sort of a sublime kind of minimal parallel of, of just, you know, thinking outside the box of day-to-day -day life in a way. And, you know, people used to love, like a Hudson River School used to love the sublime in nature, 
And then there were a lot of people who thought, well, here comes technology. That's going to, you know, uh, take over the sublime in a way, you know, and there was this utopic idea of it. And then it turned dystopic where it's ruining all of our lives because all we're doing is staring at a screen. But I think you're creating situations and environments where people can can sort of recapture some of that sublime and that it's you you can't wrap your head around it, you know, and it's using technology in a way that the Hudson River School painters were in a way of, of creating awe or a sense of this is otherworldly, you know. I imagine when you go to uh, Dia Beacon, you're into that place, A, and then B, did you, have you ever done anything at the Mattress Factory? No, I haven't. Um, have you ever I, been there? Yes, I have. I love it. I feel like yeah. that would be a great, that's right up your alley. And, you know, Absolutely. Rolf Julius did a great sound piece outside where it was just sound playing as you walked mm-hmm. around that I thought was really cool. And he had some pieces inside, too. But there weren't, there's not that many, are there that many sound artists? Um, yeah, I mean, there's some, there are lots of artists that work with sound and I'm, I'm actually dipping my toe back into that, which has been a lot of fun. Um, yeah. and it feels like all the, I mean, I spent a lot of the pandemic digitizing hundreds of mini DV tapes that miraculously still had data on them. Um, so kind of looking back at a lot of things I was doing a long time ago and thinking about the past and the future and, um, but it, you know, it was an interesting moment and, and so this, this stuff is kind of coming full circle and, you know, we're starting to create kind of these immersive experiences with sound and uh, furniture and, 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 you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's good. We're, it's an exciting time. I think it's a, an under tapped uh, medium, but I think it's really hard in, in the, in the tradition of fine art because it demands a certain lack of visual to uh, if it's just sound that mm-hmm. like your room where you're it's a, it's almost yeah. like a sonic deprivation tank sounds really interesting right. but it's harder to pull that stuff off i think it's uh, people have a harder time with it you know cuz they think of sound functioning in such a different way but when you were coming up and you were playing around with that technology before coding and before all that stuff was really accessible or intuitive and it, you had to dig there was a lot of really interesting uh, electronic developments and electronic music going on about that time. Did that ever enter your radar? Did you feel kinship with like kind of the developments with, you know, sound and computers as a parallel to visuals and computers? Um, yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, that, that had a big, I mean, that was all happening with Burning Man and, you know, in our camp, we started a camp called Disorient. Um, it's been uh, in 2001. Um, so yes, we were doing a lot of, um, you know, sound, you know, like more music and parties and underground things. And, and that was, um, really exciting. I felt like there was definitely a kind of a, a, a line between those two. And I felt like, you know, I, I wanted to, and it felt like I had to kind of keep the, the work in, in the gallery and the, and the things in the studio a little more, you know, separate from that, that sort of right. thing. Yeah. Um, cause it, I guess nowadays things seem a little bit more flexible, but it was definitely like a, you know, when you, you wanted to have sound in the gallery and like furniture, everyone was like, wait a second, this is, you know, what is this? And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I, this was back in 2000, 2001, uh, I wanted to show an animation in my show, which was all paintings. And then one animation and my dealer was like, yeah, does that's, you're a painter, <laughs> you know, that you don't, 
and uh it was a, it was a tough fight but you know and now it's like yeah of course no big deal you know but back then it was like you know there were issues with the way certain media was seen as far as like quote unquote new media and that was one question i that i wanted to ask you too about you know the way you the medium of your work when you first started really using it a much different kind of user interface than there is now and now everything is so accessible like my son in his room has led light systems that are just i mean they play to the music he can it's just so intuitively connected to whatever he wants to do with it which i think changes the way we see pieces that for instance maybe you have done you know 15 years ago than how you see them now how do you feel about that whole change yeah i mean it's definitely become very democratic. Anybody who wants LEDs and a controller and whatever can do whatever they want with it. And it's become just a, a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And back, you know, in the day, I remember when I did my first LED sculpture, it was very, very expensive. And I had to really like struggle and, you know, found a guy at, you know, color kinetics and he was my light dealer and he would kind of show up on the street and I'd go down and he'd open his trunk and kind of this illicit, thing that we were doing um you know but it was you know incredibly exciting because suddenly i could make 16 million colors and you know that was pretty astounding and the, the the use of solid state lighting was kind of amazing too and that it had this longevity of a hundred thousand hours you know 11 and a half years if you were to burn it at full power that's pretty great compared to you know strobe lights and light bulbs and all these other things i was using yeah um but yeah uh now it seems like the world has really caught up and people are putting LEDs on everything. And, and there's a lot of really, um, you know, bad use of light. I mean, and that's it's one of the unfortunate things. Um, I, I, I believe in everyone having access to everything. I, I think it's, um, you know, I think, you know, for a while, you know, I did have access and I think that, you know, the, the work has to be more than that. And you just have this unique thing that only you have. It's like, okay, you know, great. But then you have to use it in another way. Um, right. So that's, you know, and I went really deep into sequencing light and working in a very, you know, with, with a, not a lot of, of information. And, and it is seeing these things now, it's like kind of amazing to have done that. Like, oh yeah, I did that 20 years ago. And, you know, and, and you see the wor world kind of catch up in a way. And, um, does and that change also, how you work now, though? Um, I mean, one. Of, I mean, I guess one of the things the the kind of the the commercial, you know, when you see this kind of takeover of art by um, like fashion or uh, retail and all these kinds of things, and it's you know it's very slick, um, yeah. and that is a little bit like, you know, it, it's it's concerning because you feel like wow, you know, you just kind of went to you saw this thing and it's obviously this kind of directly inspired by but but there's a lot of that and i think you just have to run faster and put on your blinders and um you know i think it it raises the bar and i think that there's something i think there's something special that you know is in there that differentiates these things from what you would see definitely in, yeah, in those it, contexts um and I think there really is a role for, you know, for that distinction. And I think that there can be a lot of things that look like other things, but I think they still maintain a certain 
you know, essence and purity. Um, and it's, you know, I, I've been working in a certain way for a long, long time and, and, and engaging, you know, concepts of emergent behavior, and artificial life, you know, just that sounds complicated, but it's really just setting up a certain framework and not knowing what the, what the outcome is going to be and letting it kind of flow. So you're engaging chance and then selecting things and finding, um, you know, making discoveries along the way, but that, and also working with very, you know, small amounts of, of information. Um, so I've kind of developed a way of working, which is, is pretty unique. And, and I've been able to apply that. We, you know, in, in 2017, I, I made some work using these OLED displays, which each is capable of displaying 8 million pixels, um, right. which is kind of astounding. And I'm like, wow, um, you know, how can I take the way I've been working with 16 lights and, you know, expand the scale to like, you know, 8 million pixels. And then I, you know, once we got one panel, I'm like, okay, well, we need two more. So we ended up making these 24 million pixel displays. But what I realized is I could really take the way I was working with code and increase the resolution and still maintain the same uh, flow. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, to find other new kinds of materials, like I had traditionally never really wanted to work with representations of light and work with light itself. But the OLED panel was kind of astounding, the quality of it. And I actually started working with some projection stuff at that point and thinking of new materials and re-engaging with a lot of these things that I'd sort of said, you know, it's not that interesting. But in a way, sometimes the technology kind of catches up and you're like, wow, this is this is worth, you know, exploring and, and seeing what we can do with it. Yeah, I mean, I have the parallel of um, in working with acrylic paints, you know, there's been a lot of new paint or like these sort of like things with texture in it. A lot of like developments and in, in sustainable uses of, you know, kind of these funky paints in the beginning. I'm like, I don't need that's just like gimmicky, you know. And then over time it changes and you can find certain ways maybe to incorporate it in that can really work within the dialogue of what you're doing. But the reason I asked that question is because I definitely see in your work that you are, it's really important that there are people like you making work out of those materials that is taking it to another level, right? It's thinking about it in a different way, in a more artistic way, because or else we just get those little lights that people project for Christmas onto the front of our house. It's like snowflakes and like confetti or whatever. So we need that. But it's an interesting time for you in the sense that if you look at oil paint, when they first started making oil paint, there were people painting who were probably just like, oh my God, I can make this stuff look like a bridge or a person or whatever. And, you know, that drove the work probably for a while of like, wow, I can actually do that. And then it gets to the point to where it's mass produced. Everyone has it. So it's like, okay, well, it can't just be about the fact that you have this material anymore. It's like, right. what are you doing with, what's your original voice, but you're living through within your work and your, the dialogue of your work of an evolving technology that doesn't exist yet. Like it's, it's compounding on itself on how it's developing and changing in real time, which I would imagine is exciting, daunting, and a little bit like, Oh my gosh, is this going to be super dated or how do I, what's the sustainability of it and all that stuff. And then at the end of the day, screw it. I'm just playing with this stuff and I'm trying to make the most interesting, engaging environments and, and sort of spectacles in a way that I can, that I can do. Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of the, these materials, you know, a lot of the LED fixtures were used for, you know, Las Vegas and Times Square and, and for commercial yeah. applications. 
And I think a lot of what I've been trying to do is use that material, but then remove the advertising purpose for it. So it doesn't, not displaying a logo, it's doing this abstract thing. And, and I, I feel like that's one of the, I mean, the, the technology we're surrounded by is so kind of coercive and go here and buy this. And that, you know, it's just, it's tracking. It's, it's, just like, yeah. it's, over, it's overwhelming how um, on rails we are and how oppressive it is. And it's also, it's really slick, this stuff. So I can use that and kind of subvert it and make something that is abstract, that is open-ended, that's non-repeating, that people can kind of look at and, and I think there's a real, and I think that's where the joy part of it comes in. That people are like, you're in this thing, and you're suddenly you're like, wow, I'm not, I'm not being sold something. I'm not, you know, I don't have to do this or whatever. And it's just sort of like getting back to like, wow, these are kind of amazing um, materials, and let's have a different kind of purpose in the use of them. Um, so I think it is that, you know, it is a somehow that that is exciting to me and continuing to adapt and you know we've been using these video wall type things and again you know we were we were rolling our own stuff for a while and making our own led fixtures and control systems and on and on and on and went really deep into the that part of the of it and which was exciting that we could do that it's also really really hard you know it just like takes a huge amount of time and effort and um we thought well what what exists out in the world that we could use and and this video wall stuff actually ended up being kind of an interesting canvas and we started working with it. And um, so I'm open to these new, the new things that are happening and always, you know, looking at new displays and, and even talking to some display manufacturers and they're like, well, and they're now they're asking me, well, what would you want? Because I, I've actually in, influenced like color kinetics that, you know, was then bought by Philips and is now signify. Um, they, you know, I would ask them to make a special product for me. It's like, well, can you make it white? Could you do this and that? And it ends up becoming part of their product line. So in right. a way, I've really influenced it back the other way. Um, and all the, you know, projects like the Bay Lights or Illuminated River have led to, you know, it's become a test case for them. And, you know, I don't think they ever thought that light could be used in the places that I put light. And um, so it's kind of feeding back in another way. And, um, but it's interesting when you start to kind of, push influence it and it's you know and it's all it's it it, it gets uh it gets very interesting <laughs> yeah i'm sure it's a little surreal in the sense of like wrapping your head around the the linear movement of like what you're thinking about and creating when it starts to create this you know influence back into the the pool of what you're dipping into in the first place which is <laughs> but hopefully for the best in the sense that you know that artistic sort of angle of it can be injected into some of these things that, you know, like the lights in my kid's room to where he can play his own, write his own music and make the lights move to it, which is pretty cool. You know, it's just, you, you're always going to have that, you know, the prepackaged sort of generic version of whatever it is that's developed. And then there's going to be the people who take it and try to make cool stuff with it. That's, you know, in a different sort of wavelength than everyone else. And, um, yeah, so the more people get to see work like that, I think, and, and what you were talking about before, that sense of encountering light in a way that's unexpected and not driven by the commercial avenues that are normally there, there's no, I don't think there's any experience like that. Because when you, that's why people love that stuff. Because when they see it, they're just like, oh my God, that it's so unexpected. 
but it's not trying to sell them something. It's just, you just see it, you know, you just experience it, which is almost a kind of, you know, a sublimation or, or a sort of meditation on, on just experience, you know, like an immersive experience in a way, which is, I think, rare, really. Yeah, it's, um, I love the, I think that, that that's what's exciting about art to me. It's just the, the, the level of refinement and the, you know, this, these lifelong missions and you, you know, you see Terrell in the crater and, you know, that kind of, you know, intensity of, of commitment. And, and those are kind of the artist role models I love are just the ones that are just at it and they just do it every single day. And they're just like, it's like, it is like close encounters. You, you're like, you have this crazy idea and you're building this giant dirt mound and it's that obsessive, like, you know, you just have to do it. Yeah. Um, those kinds of things and, and doing it for yourself is really the other, you know, obviously we're all engaged in, you know, in these conversations with, you know, the art world and all these things. But I, I just think it's, it's important to be clear about why. Um, and at the right. end of the day, it's just because I want to do it and I like doing it. And I, you know, there are lots of different things that happen and it is, you know, it's, you know, you want to put things out in the world and see what happens. Um, yeah. You're, uh, you're preaching to the choir on that because these are literally conversations with artists that I do that are just for me. And people say, Oh, it's so kind that you share everyone's story. And I'm like, well, I just, I love doing it. I just like to talk to people and I gain a lot out of it. And then I put it out there on the internet, but whatever, (laughs) you know, it's, it's about, you know, and I think sometimes when you quote unquote do something for yourself like that and you get really into it, it ends up feeding the rest of the people who engage in that because they, they see what dedication and what kind of a real belief in something that is not negative, that is more sort of a positive open-ended understanding of things, what that, that effect that that can have on people who engage in it, you know? So like Agnes Martin might've been really into those lines and those paintings and was just doing it for herself. But when I walk into that room and I see 10 of them, I have a certain, it, it speaks to me and I ha- it resonates in a way, you know, and you have to have a willing participant, but at the same time, when you, when that experience happens, I think that is the beauty of art. That's what takes things to another level outside of just the day-to-day buy stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. Speaking of buying stuff and blah, 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 why don't we tap into this whole N- NFT business? You got to tell me something about it because I don't... <laughs> I think yeah. I wrapped my head around it. I don't want to sound too old, but I mean, I work um, digitally, so. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, uh, about a year ago, um, Ed Manning, one of my colleagues in the studio, amazing 3D artist, sent us all this document about NFTs. And it was like, you're going to be hearing a lot about this. And we're like, okay. And um, yeah, I right, sort of read, <laughs> I read through it. I'm like, you know, what? and it was sort of perplexing and like, why? And what is this? And. Um, you know, and more and more stuff started happening out in the world. And I just, I found it to be just kind of visually like, like, what is this? I couldn't, couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, and, but around, you know, in the summer of last year, um, Mark Limcher from Pace Gallery suggested I, you know, I take a look at Art Blocks and, uh, it's a company that Eric Calderon started with Jeff Davis and, you know, really interesting. The focus of it is generative art. Um, so it's live code um, that gets uploaded 
to the blockchain, the actual code um, is uploaded. And then when you mint one of these things or create one of these things, you don't know what the output is going to be. So it's, it's randomized in a way, but the code ends up generating a lot of you know, different outputs and permutations. So I found that whole, whole mode very interesting um, and, and related to kind of the way I was working. Um, so I ended up going, these guys opened a space in Marfa, Texas in October uh, gallery. And that was also really exciting. My, my mom's family is from Marfa. We have a home in Marfa. And I was like, holy shit. You know, so it was kind of great. Um, went and saw the space, really liked, you know, what these guys were doing and, you know, and then started thinking, well, how would I participate in this? And, you know, the tools we use are, you know, not something you could use in a web browser and, you know, they're very, you know, quite elaborate. So I, I started learning a lot about what you could do with current technology in a browser and, uh, was learning about what's called three JS. Uh, so it's a version of like JavaScript that controls, um, WebGL, which is related to OpenGL, which is what, you know, we were using back in the nineties to make right. all that VR stuff. So it's kind of old school in a way, but you can do it in a browser and the, the, you know, we did a bunch of experiments. I was kind of astounded by what you could do with this visually um, and was very excited about it. And, you know, I, I was working with some amazing creative coders and, and it just was this organic thing. And we, you know, one thing led to another and I, um, and we ended up, you know, coming up with this idea and, and submitting, you know, we, we, we shared it with art blocks and they were like, wow, we would love to put this out in the world. So the, the, the project is called Cosmic Reef and it's, uh, you know, named after an image that was sent back by the Hubble Space Telescope that had this sort of aquatic, galactic feeling. And, uh, you know, again, it was really very simple in, in its beginnings of like, you know, here's a sphere or here's a torus or some simple geometry. And then starting to kind of, you know, play with that and like, what if we increase the scale or what if we add some noise? What if we had feedback and all these kind of, kind of simple things, but out of it, these, these kind of amazing things were ended up resulting. Um, and so those became the kind of the, the building blocks for what we, we created. So we, um, we launched this thing yesterday, um, which was quite exciting. And, uh, you know, but it's been a, a real, uh, crash course and all this stuff, which is not, you know, it's a whole other world. Um, but the, I guess what really is interesting to me is that it's, it exists as a purely digital work and it's not connected to like a light sculpture as my work has always been. So I can't control the way that this is going to be displayed, which is kind of, you know, that's one of the trade-offs, uh, on the other side, it's like, wow, you know, all these people can have access to the work and it's out there. And, um, and, you know, in a way, like anybody can go and see the work and have it and enjoy it at full resolution. And it's all out there. It's almost like public art. Yeah. Um, certain people will be able to quote unquote own it. But if you can get over this ownership idea and just say, I get to experience this work, um, it's it's really exciting uh, a way to kind of connect with a whole other audience in a, in a new way. So I've found it to be pretty thrilling. Yeah, it sounds great. Well, that's, I guess the question, I mean, just because I don't have a ton of experience in it is what is the advantage of the whole 
minting of things over just putting it up online. Because as a digital artist, I don't understand it because I, or be, well, admittedly, I haven't delved into it deep enough just because I get so busy with <laughs> day to day. You know what I mean? It, yeah. I, it almost yeah. feels like like Snapchat or something where I'm like, I'm just not going to go that. I, mean, I can't go one more. You know what I mean? And I just, like, I make a lot of digital drawings that are just drawings for the animations and I make animations and they are, you know, lately I've even been doing just like one I used to addition them of like addition of five and now I'm just getting around to the idea of just having one animation it's on a tv you buy it and that's it mm -hmm. it's a one thing so but I'm just curious as to how that system works or how you know what that means to the work I think it's just a it's a in a way it's a marketplace in a way and people can connect with things and they know where to find it and they know how to connect with one another and, you know, a lot of it is like, it's, it's just like, it's not my cup of tea. And I think probably a lot of people in the art will look at it and, and want to run screaming. But I do think that there are some, you know, like Tom Sachs, he did this rocket program, which I think is, yeah. you know, one of the most interesting um, NFT programs out there and found a way to connect it back to a physical rocket. And, you know, it's like a really interesting hybrid. So I think that, I don't know how it's all going to shake out, but I know that this was... I, I really have enjoyed the process and putting the work out there. And I think um, uh, in a way, you know, it is like this immersive experience that you can have. Um, and it's, you know, it, it does come with all the baggage of the, of the, you know, the computer and the screen and all that. But I think there are other ways of displaying the work that will, you know, uh, that a lot of people are working on, like how do you create like a, a way to display these these things as artworks? Right. Because they, yeah. you know, they are artworks. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, and it's collection based, right? Like you basically have your collection of these things that you're putting together in a way. Yeah, and that's something I'm really new. I'm I'm really new to all of this, um, but I I found it to be pretty exciting, and I think that's a lot of the. Um, you know, the things driving it are, are really pretty fundamental. And I think we're all, you know, this is like a, a, a real, I think it's important. And that, that's something I've realized is that it is exciting and something to engage with. I think it, if you can get beyond the kind of like, you know, overwhelming nature of it when you first look at it and it yeah. is in your, you know, you know, so that if once you punch through that and find something that, you know, I think that that was for me very lucky. I found my my people and my uh, little niche, and I've been I loved working with these guys. Um, so that part of it has made it really, um, you know, really nice. And we'll see where it leads. I think it's, um, but I think it will be an important part of my work, you know, going on. Yeah, I think there's something nice too about the democratic kind of like anyone can have access. And I think the maybe for us because we are of a certain generation. Um, maybe there's something daunting about all that bandwidth of like basically like the spotification of music to where it's like, Oh my God, there's everything on there. It's hard to even pick or know what to delve into. You know, I think it kind of weeds itself out over time, but um, it's nice to have the variety of just being able, and people can, you know, SoundCloud, like you can write a song right now and upload it in 10 minutes and it's available to everyone in the world, which is a pretty amazing idea. Yeah. Well, the, you know, I think in like a lot of NFTs are like you get like a single image or you get a short little 15 second video. 
Yeah. And what we're doing, this is live code. So it's actually, you get a whole other experience, which is much richer. It's organic, right? Like it's growing in a way. It is. And it, you know, in the way that, you know, we have a, a, a mode where you can hit the Z key and you go on this like zoom through the, through the geometry. And it really feels like you're inside of it. Um, yeah. So I think it's, and it's also resolution independent, which is really exciting that it can scale to whatever, you know, your display is. Right. Um, so I think it, it has a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, I think the cosmic reef in a way feels very generous and that there's a lot packed into that little bundle. Um, and, and most times you don't really get that, um, you know, when you're buying like a, you know, a, a single image or a short video. So in, right. in that way, I find it's, um, you know, this little nugget, um, but being able to compare all of them together and you get a sense of the range of like the output from this really kind of a tiny little bit of code can create this much stuff gets back to this kind of the, you know, what I've always been trying to do is like boiling things down to their essence and, you know, and, and if I can, you know, like 120 K I can make like a, um, you know, the, the, the universe, um, yeah. And it's, it looks really complex and you're like, holy shit, you know, it's like kind of, you know, so I, I find it astounding and exciting to be able to do that and then to be able to like share it, um, you know, with people and, and let them, you know, take that journey too. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's funny, one of the best classes I ever took was when I was a grad student at Yale and it was a general education class and it was fractals and it was taught by the, the assistant of Mendelbrot, I think, or something. I don't know. Oh, it's wow. amazing. Wow. But it reminds me, everything reminds me of that class. Like this sort of like viral growth of like stuff online or, you know, just any kind of um, infinite th- possibility of things. Like I used to run remixes of songs that I would make through After Effects visual filters to create a weird coded like output of like music that I had no control over. I love that kind of stuff. No, I mean, yeah. I feel like no one, I did like an animation at Mary Boone in 2006 and it was a, gener, a generative animation of a cityscape where the lights would always change differently and it never repeated. No one cared. Like literally no one looked at it and thought or read it and thought, oh, that's interesting. But for right. me, I was like, this is crazy. This could go on forever and never repeat. Yeah. And it seemed really new at that point or something, a new possibility. But I feel like it's this fractalization of information where, you know, that's kind of like the sublime now, you know, it's like this endless possibilities of things, which is, which is what the the sublime should do. It should daunt, it should be daunting and awe-inspiring and kind of scary and awesome at the same time, (laughs) you know, I think that's where we are right now in a way. Well, changing, changing the way people see is always like, that's how I feel like when I've seen some great art, I like go out and I see the world in a different way. And so I think that, you know, through this highly artificial means, if you see this thing and you're kind of like, wow, that's amazing. But maybe the next time you go out and look at the water or look at the sky, you're, you sort of, it, it changes and it reminds you. Um, I think it's and that, that part I think is, is, you know, that's, that's, that's what I try to do. You know, really like, right. how can I, you know, I want people to kind of see the world through my eyes and that's what my art is. I'm distilling it down into this little bundle and the joy is to just put that out into the world and like see how, you know, what happens and let that expand and, and, you know, and bounce around in other people's brains, you know? Yeah, no, I think it's a noble quest and it definitely puts yourself in the back burner in a way because 
you know, there's a lot of artwork out there that's just like, oh, I had a, you know, high school was hard and I had a hard time in college and it's angst of, or whatever it is, which is valid, but it's just nice to see something that's opened up and like almost universal to where anyone can just engage in it. So how do people do the NFT thing? Do you have any advice on that? Like what, what, if people want to check out what you're doing, what do they do? Um, I got, I sound so old. It's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's available on artblocks.io okay. and um, it's in the curated section and the piece is called cosmic reef. So you can go there and click on it and, and then, you know, it's pretty easy to make it full screen and, and to, to view it. Um, so it's, uh, it's just, it's out there and um, that's how people see it. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, and there's, there, there's lots of interesting things um, out there. And, and I think more and more as, as um, you know, artists connect, I think there'll be more, you know, more interesting things. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, do you, and for all the IRL analog pieces that you have out there in museums and all over that stuff people can just go to your website right and and sort of find out where they can find your work in the public realm yeah we're you know we're we're, we're working on our website and um yeah there's there's lots of things and um that's a in you know yeah in new york city there's a bunch of stuff and but but all over you know i need one of those maps that has little red dots you know that should be on the studio wall. Have like one of those. Remember yeah. that movie Midnight Madness? <laughs> There's that huge map on the wall with like all the yep. clues to where you could find stuff. Um, all right, last question. What is the last musician band or whatever that you listen to in the studio? Oh, I'm trying to think. Um, I, I I love um, the Casino versus Japan. It's kind of a Oh wow! Electronic. Wow. Yeah. I li- that makes I, sense. I just, I like it's. It's a very positive. It has you know. I don't. I don't like the darkness. I don't like the. I think I need something kind of, happy. You know, it's sort of happy and uh, positive. I mean, that's what I, I try to surround myself Japan. with. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Do you yeah. like? Uh, do you like Telephone Tel Aviv? I need to listen to that. Well, it's spelled, yeah, because for yeah. some reason they, I mean, I've known them for a long, their music for a long time, and um, they are, it's T-E-L-F-O-N instead of like Telefono, we know, but check them okay. out. I, for some I'll reason, it it, when I see some of your work, I think of their their music. Cool. That's good stuff. Wow. Well, thank you so much. This has been like amazing to have a chat with you. Thanks for taking the time. And I look forward to, I, I mean, honestly, I wish I had more time to delve into this stuff, but I'm definitely going to check out the NFT and uh, one of these days going to wrap my head around it. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Cool. All right. Thanks All right. a lot, Leo. Take care. Bye-bye. Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast by checking out the website, soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find images on Instagram at soundandvisionpodcast. You can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net or on Instagram at alfredstudio. Many thanks to Leo for taking the time to talk. 
Many thanks for Michael Lovett for the introduction. Make sure to check him out in Metronomy. They're doing some tour dates around the world and here in the U.S. as well. So check them out at Metronomy's social media and website to check their tour dates. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors and Fulcrum Coffee for their sponsorship. If you have a chance, go to fulcrumcoffee.com and check out the tin that I designed for their coffee. You can order it and you get a bag of coffee inside. It's really nice if you're a big coffee fan like I am. If you can, make sure to stop by iTunes podcast, wherever you're listening to your podcasts and leave a rating and a review if you can, but at least a rating takes you a couple seconds and it helps the podcast. Big news, I have a book on the podcast coming out. Uh, it's available for pre-order. It's called Why I Make Art at soundandvisionpodcast.com. There is a book page where you can click on it, and there's links to where you can pre-order the book. It's going to be really cool. I'll talk more about it as we get closer to the release date, but safe to say there's going to be a lot of uh, artist voices and quotes and, and cool stuff in the book. So check that out. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>